Welcome to episode 111 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. This is Deep Sky Observing in Leo, Virgo, and Coma Berenices, or Berenices. I'm Chris, and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky. And this podcast is for anyone else who likes going out under the stars. And how is your spring astronomy going, Shane? It's going well. Uh, lots of double star observing so far. Going to add some variable star observing. And spring is quite famous in amateur astronomy circles for galaxy hunting. Mm -hmm. This is the galaxy season or, or the start of it. Um, and there's, uh, especially for Northern observers, you know, it's um, sort of a fleeting opportunity for Virgo. It, it doesn't uh, stay too prominent uh, for very long for us because no. we're getting closer to perpetual daylight in June, but mm -hmm. um, this is a, a great time of the year. And again, for us in, in more Northern latitudes where we have uh, colder winters, um, it's also sort of, uh, you know, uh, just a welcoming warming of temperatures. And, and I've, you know, the amount of time I spend at the telescope goes up exponentially from where I was over the winter time. Yeah. I'm really not much of a galaxy observer myself. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm always more, into the the other seasons i guess um you know so here here we are at this time of year there's kind of like four seasons hey like we have um the the spring season which we call galaxy season the reason for that is that you know in our in our disc of our milky way galaxy where where we reside um this is the time of year we're in the evening we're looking out of that disc and sort of past the the uh the lowest density um, of our Milky Way uh, arms. And then as we move into the summer months, we're looking towards the, the, the core of the Milky Way, kind of towards the center of our galaxy. So um, we're looking at a, a different set of objects being prominent, which are mostly like uh, star clusters and nebulas and some globular clusters um, and a lot more stars, you know, the, the bright band of the Milky Way itself and, and the dark bands that, that cut through it. And then as we get in, into the fall, although we get some galaxies, we're kind of getting more into that uh, that sort of Milky Way of of the winter sky. Um, sort of there's there's a bit of a Milky Way in in the fall sky, and and then that just progresses into the Milky Way of the winter sky. And so so mostly I'm kind of like a like a Milky Way observer, but uh, I probably looked at a couple thousand galaxies in my time or something like that too. So yeah, I'm I'm very similar. I I prefer to look at a lot of our our own galaxy objects. Um, and I've looked at a number of, of, uh, galaxies, uh, through my time, but I find, you know, like with, uh, uh galaxies really need aperture, you know, yeah. to, to bring out the detail. Otherwise they really just look like faint fuzzies. Um, yeah. and, uh, you know, at, uh, at the largest aperture I've had is 12 inches, uh, a Dobsonian telescope. And, uh, it showed some amazing detail in, in multiple galaxies, um, but the, the amount of bright galaxies that really show detail, um, you know, it's a finite number and, and you do reach the end of that. And then it's either, um, you know, step up an aperture to see additional detail in other galaxies. But even that is, uh, you know, you get to a point where you've kind of exhausted that, uh, as well. So, yeah. um, I just don't look at galaxies as often, but I, I still do enjoy them. And, um, yep. even in small refractors, like some of the, some galaxy, sorry, I hit my microphone stand. Okay. Some, some galaxies look outstanding, even in smaller apertures. Um, yeah. So we'll probably cover a few of those today. Yeah. Well, Mike, he got, he's getting his uh, 15 inch working. 
And uh, so, so, so uh, I look forward to having some views to that maybe, maybe later this spring, uh, if, yeah. if we ever all end up getting vaccinated. We were talking about yeah. that just before we went back on. We're, we're on, vaccinations are on hold here. So we're kind of sitting around waiting to see what happens over the next few weeks. Yeah, I don't, this is an aside, um, but I, I don't know if you saw on astrobicell.com, there was a 25 inch obsession for sale for wow. $6,500. Um, and it has like all of the bells and whistles with the Argo Nav, I think Argo Navis or no yeah, Servo Cat and Argo oh. Navis. Um, yeah, uh, great, great price. There's a sale pending. Uh, that's like a, I think that's a $20,000 US telescope brand name for a 25 yeah, inch. I really want, I really want one of my friends to buy that telescope. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I do not want to own something that requires a trailer to, uh, to haul around. That's like owning a couple horses. I mean, that is <laughs> like, that is, that's a lot of, I've looked through the 25 inch obsession and it's, 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 they're great. Like, it's really cool. Like it is cool, but, uh, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, it's kind of like going on vacation and staying in an expensive hotel for two or three days. And you're, you kind of, you get the experience, but you know, you can kind of don't, don't need to live in that environment. And uh, that's kind of what, what having a massive telescope like that is like, in my opinion, it's uh, oh, pretty cumbersome, you know, and uh, it's a responsibility and uh, you know, it's, it's a lot of heavy heartache if you ask me, but, uh, but yeah, when I go to the star party, I'm definitely, I'm right there. I'm climbing that ladder and I'm thanking the owner profusely and, you know, really given, given, uh, you know, good credit to, to them. If I, if I publish observations through the gear, because I, I definitely appreciate that, but, uh, not for me to own such a, such a monstrosity, but, uh, yeah, like I concur with you on, on the galaxy front. I remember when I first became, uh, proficient, like I, I got, you know, a few years behind me and observing and, uh, I had an eight inch telescope and I'd observed all like the messies and, different, uh, brighter NGC galaxies. And I just wanted to see like, how many of these things can I actually see? And, you know, I was a much younger person and, uh, had that eight inch out in the backyard and, uh, you know, close to magnitude six sky. And, you know, I, I could just sit there and, and find a galaxy and take an observation and find the next one. And I remember spending night after night after night, observing dozens of galaxies every night, just, just because I was kind of really enjoying the fact that I could actually uh, star hop and, and find things in the nighttime sky uh, pretty quickly. And, uh, you know, after, after several nights, I kind of almost had my fill of it. You know, it's like once you've seen, you know, one tenth or 11th magnitude galaxy through an eight inch telescope, um, they do kind of all start to uh, start to look the same, but it's still, it's still neat. It's still fun. It's still challenging. Um, but that's when I kind of started getting into the smaller scopes and, uh, and looking at some, some larger things. So let's start with, uh, with Leo Shane, I, I can talk a little bit about the, the myth history and, and stuff like that, but I didn't know if you had anything to, to talk about first about it. Um, no, I, I think the introduction is, has uh, been sufficient. Like this episode really is about some prominent, uh, constellations in the sky right now that are in the South or, or kind of Southeast, yeah. Um, and features a lot of galaxies in that region of the sky. So uh, let's get into it. Yeah. So as you were saying, um, and I think that's a great place to start is, is how, how do, how do I find these things? If you're, if you're just kind of, maybe, maybe you just want to find Leo, for example, well, right now in the evening sky, where, wherever you are on the planet, um, 
in the, and this is like more for the Northern hemisphere. I think you can see Leo probably getting down to, uh, I don't know how far into the Southern hemisphere. You should see it a, a fair ways down because it is a, uh, uh, a zodiacal uh, constellation. The, the ecliptic runs through it. Um, so, but it will be upside down. But from here anyway, in the Northern hemisphere, um, there's the bright star Regulus and it's gonna be passing uh, basically at its highest point above the uh, southern horizon in the in the mid-evening. Like here, it's around like uh, maybe 10 or 11 o'clock uh, is when it's at its highest. And it's at the end of this large sort of uh, question mark feature. And then just about, I think it's about uh, maybe 10 or 20 degrees uh, to the east is a triangle. So th these are kind of prominent um, star patterns in the night sky. And sort of together, if you drew lines, um, they say like that kind of forms the line, although I really don't think it looks much like a line, but they are, they are prominent um, patterns in the nighttime sky. Yeah, yeah, they are. And I, I agree, while I don't necessarily see a lion in this constellation, this is one of the constellations where I do see like an animal, right? It could be a dog, it could be any kind of four-legged creature, but um, you know, I can, I can go with a lion and, and be okay with that. You know what, you know what I think it looks like? What's I think that? it kind of, I think it kind of looks like a mouse, a mouse, <laughs> sort of like pointing the other way. So I kind of see the, the front oh, part, the triangle is yeah, like a little yeah. mouse nose. And then I kind of see the tail is like, like it's sort of like hunkered down yeah, and like yeah. maybe sniffing for cheese. And then the tail is anyway, we're not going to redraw the sky. <laughs> no, no. I've always seen it as uh, like a Pharaoh kind of like, you know, how it's down on all fours. And uh, anyway, yeah, we're not going to redraw it. So carry on. <laughs> But people can make their own their own patterns. So, um, you know, in, in the history of astronomy, you know, all cultures have have had um, their own patterns in the sky. And, and sometimes different cultures, for whatever reasons, have, have shared um, the same uh, the same mythological creatures uh, in the sky. So in Babylonian astronomy, which which really comes out of, um, you know, I think it's the area in and around what was uh, Samaria and sort of modern day uh, Iraq, they, they did refer to this as the great lion and the bright star there, Regulus, is, as we talked about, um, stands for the star in the lion's breast. So what's really interesting about early astronomy is that they didn't have the names uh, for the stars, for, for the most part, with some exceptions. They would just refer to um, the stars positionally within the constellations. They, they kind of had them more closely tied in. And then it was it was later on with the uh, Persian astronomers, um, people like uh, Abdur al Sufi, um, who actually put names to those stars, and that's why we have um, you know Leo as as a uh, as, as a constellation, um, and maybe with some Greek mythology uh, mixed in as well. Uh, you know, uh, Leo represented uh, the monster uh, Humbaba. Who was killed by Gilgamesh in that in that uh, Sumerian poem, um, but you know when when the Persian astronomers came along, they they gave it those names. So that's why you might have a constellation uh, like Leo or Leo the Lion, and then you you have a star that's called uh, Regulus, um, you know, which was placed uh, placed up there by by the Persians. So, um, but as far as like the the mythology, I'm not that familiar. I, I remember reading Gilgamesh when I was in school, but. Uh, but that's sort of the, the extent of it. So I don't know if you have any, any other history you wish to add, but I, I will say this is that um, 
Leo the lion was is one of the zodiac constellations. That means the uh, planets will pass through it. That means the sun and the, and the moon pass through it as well. Um, and it means that, that eclipses uh, of all types can occur there, occultations. And, uh, and, uh, you know, and because of that, um, you know, you should be aware that if you do eventually see like a, like a bright planet or something, or the moon and Regulus will often uh, pair up. I, th I think they pair up later on uh, this month. Do you have anything to, to add to that, Shane? No, no, uh, nothing, nothing to add. All right, just taking a drink of water there. All right, so we'll talk uh, about Regulus for, for a quick second. Um, have you ever observed Regulus? Like, have you actually gone out, pointed a telescope at it, and observed it before? Oof, I don't think so. Uh, I, I would have to check my logs, but that does not stand out. So I have, and this is why. So back when I, when I lived in Ontario, this is uh, about a dozen years ago, um, I really wanted to see the dwarf galaxy Leo 1, which is right beside Regulus. And it is really tough to see, let me tell you. And so uh, my friend Clark, Clark Muir, he's the, the uh, chair of the history committee for the RASC. Um, now, back then, we, we were just, you know, two guys that, that observed together. And, uh, and we went out, he had his 12 inch and I had my five inch. And, uh, and I think he might've had an occulting bar or maybe I did, I can't remember. Anyway, we, we tried a whole variety of things like just using eyepieces with sharp field stops. And we did end up confirming that, uh, that we did see it, especially going back and forth between uh, my five inch uh, telescope and, and his 12 inch daub. Um, you know, they're, they're two very different instruments. The, the refractor um, might've been a little sharper, but didn't have uh, the light gathering power. And you could definitely see this little glow uh, just off to the side. And then kind of, uh, uh, I think through the reflector, it was like on the top or something like that. It's differently oriented, but you could kind of look in and you could kind of see that sort of same faint glow. Now, if, if you're just using one of the instruments, you, uh, you might not be so sure because you might think it was, it was some sort of reflection or, or something or, or, or scatter in, in the optical train, but by going back and forth between uh, two very different instruments, uh, we were able to confirm that, that we saw Leo one, this, this dwarf galaxy uh, rate, uh, rate off of uh, Regulus. But do, do you ever, have you ever seen Leo one? No, no, I have not. I, to be honest, I can't even say I've tried for it. So uh, you know, as Wayne Gretzky says, you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take. So. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, to, to be frank, like we, we missed a lot of the shots, uh, at first. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. not, not only is it, is it very faint, um, and, and it appears as this super faint patch, um, but it's also next to this really bright star Regulus, uh, which is a first magnitude star. So, and it wasn't even discovered until the 1950s um, hmm. when, uh, when, when they took those photographic plates, the, the famous, uh, you know, Schmidt camera photographic plates uh, on, on polymer um, with the 48 inch uh, National Geographic camera. That's, uh, that's when they actually uh, ran across it. But, you know, you, you do see lots of reports, uh, you know, people using, uh, you know, um, you know, uh, four, inch, uh, you know, reflectors, you see reports of people using, uh, you know, three inch refractors and, uh, and actually being able to see it. So um, actually, you know, you know, being able to see it in a five inch uh, refractor 
and you know kind of side by side with a 12 inch Dobsonian you know and I got to say that's what that's what we did on those nights I think it took I think we kind of thought we saw it maybe the first night, the second night wasn't as good. And then the third night we, we had a better night and, you know, some experience behind us and we were able to see it. Um, and yeah, it was, it wasn't easy. And, you know, kind of on, on those nights, it's sort of good and it's, and it's bad. Whereas um, you spend all night, sometimes several nights trying to see one thing. So everybody else is kind of, they're looking at all the fun stuff and, you know, you know, brighter galaxies and maybe some of the, some of the summer stuff that's just on the horizon. And, oh, I'm looking at this cluster or this, uh, this other galaxy that that's bright and I can see the spiral arms and, and here we are, we're just trying to see something at all. And sort of, you know, uh, you know, more like work, I guess, is, is what it comes down to. And it's very close. It's just 12 arc minutes, uh, from Regulus itself. So, so anyway, but, uh, could, could be something to try for Pe- People are saying they can see it, uh, in instruments as small as, uh, as about uh, 70 millimeters. So, um, hmm. from a dark site, you're, you're yep. 76, um, you'd have to get to a really dark site, but, but you might, you might stand a chance at seeing it. Yeah, it uh, it looks like it's a decent size too. It just yeah, very dim, and and then the brightness from Regulus would have to be controlled. But uh, yeah, that yeah. would be a, an interesting challenge. Yeah, so probably your your best bet. And the thing that I found worked um, was using a good eyepiece. I was using the the Pentax XWs, and um, they have a very sharp field stop. So what I was, what I would do is just get uh, Regulus outside of the field of view, mm-hmm. and then my my five inch apochromat doesn't have a lot of scatter, and uh, you know you you can see it, yeah. But it's going to be one of those things where you're gonna you're gonna look, you're, you'll spend a, an hour or so on that, and you'll kind of I don't know if I saw it or not, and then you'll you'll have to come back to it a couple more times. So anyway, that's Regulus and the Leo One Dwarf Galaxy. Yeah, good challenge object for folks to give a try. Like yeah. you said, though, dark sky is a must for that one. Yeah. Now, now I also looked at a, at a couple more things. There's a lot of really faint galaxies. We're talking about the galaxy clusters uh, here here in a few minutes, but uh, you know, there's there's some bright objects like uh, on on the image I have on my screen here. I have M66 on the right, but then on the left, there's this. Uh, I think it's called the Galactic Horseshoe. Hmm. I'm not and, too familiar with that. Yeah, I I don't know what you need to see this. I'm I'm guessing probably like maybe the 25 inch obsession um, that you talked about earlier, this, this would be a good candidate object for that. Um, but even, even that, I, I don't know. It's, it's pretty faint. What, what we're actually seeing uh, in this image is there's, there's a, a fuzzy uh, bright uh, area and that is a foreground galaxy. And I think what, what happens here is that the, uh, the light from the background galaxy kind of gets bent around it and it forms uh, kind of what looks like a horseshoe with uh, with sort of a bright fuzz dot in in the middle. So uh, that's that's what that is there. But I think it's called the galactic horseshoe. But but I don't know how faint this is. I, I think this is into like the 14th magnitude or something like that. Or or definitely you'd want an instrument that that is uh, easily able to see into the 14th or 15th magnitude to begin seeing uh, really much of anything here. Yeah, yeah, that would be. Uh, that would be tough. And I'm just looking for um, some details to see if it is uh, visual or if you need, you know, cameras to take that in or, or how you would observe that. But, uh, um, you know, I guess that's also referred to as uh, the Einstein ring, I think, isn't it? 
the, the like the galaxy lensing or whatever that occurs. But anyway, I'm going off on a tangent here. Carry on, my friend. <laughs> so then we have the Leo triplet. Now, am I recalling this correctly? Did you actually go out and observe the Leo triplet like not that long ago? Or, or was that last year? Uh, that might've been last year. I think, oh gee, you know, I, I can't remember who, but I think one of our listeners observing reports that we received, you know, within the last few weeks, that was uh, talked about observing this recently. I can't remember who that was though. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Our, our apologies for that. Um, your name didn't stick in my mind, but your observation did. So my apologies, but, but that kind of inspired me to kind of put this in here. So uh, but you you have observed the Leo uh, trio before, Shane. Do you, do you want to just talk about this a little bit? Yeah. So the, all three, uh, I think, well, let me just take a look here. I, I believe all three are Messiers or is it just two Messiers? Yeah, just two are Messiers. One is an NGC. So uh, it's Messier 65 and 66. And then the third one is NGC 3628. Um, they're quite close together in the sky and um, they're about 35 million light years away. Uh, they're all spiral galaxies. One is like edge on. Um, so you, you know, see some brightness and with larger apertures, you may see a bit of the dark dust lane kind of cutting through the middle, but mm -hmm. it really just looks like kind of a line of light. Yeah. Uh, the other two are a little bit more face on. Um, now, uh, one of them is, is more face on, so it'll appear probably a little larger. The other one would be at, I wouldn't, I don't know, I'm guessing maybe like a 30 degree angle towards us. So Sounds it's, good to me. it's going to be, you know, slightly, um, bulging in the middle. Um, but what's interesting about this triplet is like, they're all galaxies, but we, we have different perspectives looking at these galaxies, um, which is kind of neat because, you know, you have face on galaxies, you have edge on galaxies, and then you have others that are like in between that and, and you get all three in this one slice. Yeah. And the, the, and this actually is a pretty easy area to find. So if you have a telescope and you can find that sort of triangle uh, pattern, you know, on, on the Eastern side of Leo, it's just, uh, you know, almost those stars don't quite point to it, but there's like a line of stars and it's just left to the line of stars that, that come off that, uh, that, that taller side of that triangle. So anyway, uh, you, you can find a map at uh, IAU.org in the constellation section and the uh, M65 and M66 uh, are marked there, but uh, they're actually fairly easy to find. And as far as, um, as far as my observations go, I think this was the first uh, set of, three uh, galaxies that I'd seen, of course, M81 and M82 up in, uh, up in uh, Ursa Major, I had seen together, but this was the first time I had seen uh, three galaxies. And for some reason, I'm not sure if I recall the first time I saw M81 and M82, um, but this set of three galaxies, the, the Leo triplet, this really stuck out in my mind um, for some reason. I remember my first observations of them uh, because the, the Messiers M65 and M66 are quite bright. And I knew the third one was there and I was just in my backyard, which, um, is reasonably dark, like the backyard I, I had when I, I was doing this ob observing. And then I kind of knew that other one was there and I kind of had to use averted vision from my site on, on that particular night, um, to see it. And, uh, so it was kind of uh, a bit of a skills growth. Uh, and, a, and a learning experience for me and, uh, you know, kind of, kind of carried, carried that through, uh, in my observing since then. Hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. 
So moving along, we've got, uh, you know, a variable star here. Now, have, have you observed this one? I think I have observed this. It's funny, you know, I, I, I had said, like, I'm not a variable star observer. And then I start looking at, you know, and, and I know even when Stella was talking about this one last week, I didn't put it on my short list. I'm like, oh, I've observed that star because I think it's a, this is a, a carbon star, isn't it? A red star. Uh, yeah, it's definitely a red star. Um, I'm just reading some notes here on it. Um, not sure if it's carbon or not. Um, but it's very red. It's, it's now, a red giant. Yeah, it's a red yeah. giant near the end of its life. So I'm just reading from the AABSO website. Um, so on their website, uh, as Stella, uh, I think she referenced this last week, that yes, they have did. a variable of the month. And this just happens to be the variable of the month, our Leonis. And yeah, uh, yeah which is so, appropriate because that changes every month. Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, so the radius of uh, this star is about the uh, the same radius as Mars's orbit. So quite a bit larger than our sun, but that is typical of a, a star's life. As it gets towards the end, it turns into a red giant and it swells uh, considerably. Um, it's, its brightness changes by a factor of 250 times uh, over a period of uh, 310 days. Um, yeah. So quite a range. And um, uh, what does it say here? At its dimmest, it may be difficult to see in binoculars. Yeah. 11th um, magnitude. That's, that's yeah. pretty faint. Yeah. That is pretty faint. Yeah. 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 For binoculars anyway. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. So it's been known for a long time. Um, so it was J.A. Koch of uh, Danzig who observed it first in 1782. And uh, it's a long period variable and uh, it was only the fourth long period variable uh, known. And it's just, it's just five degrees away from Regulus. So this, this is one of these, these examples of where you can go from, from being a a beginner to getting some pretty good um, astronomical observing experience as time goes on. So if you, you know, if you're just beginning, you can use uh, maps from like sky map, Dot com or skymaps.com and they'll tell you when the moon is going to meet up with Regulus. And so then you can discover Regulus um, by, by kind of sorting out which, which night the moon is going to pair with Regulus and kind of we're, we're making these to kind of be used um, into the future. So I don't, don't kind of want to give any specific dates, but just go to skymaps.com. And if it's in the spring, um, there will be times when the moon will pair up with, uh, with Regulus. And then, um, you know, kind of going from there, once, once you know which star is Regulus, then uh, you can use your binoculars to find Arleonis. Maybe you can join the AVSO and, and do some, uh, some Arleonis uh, observations uh, for its magnitude. Uh, you can also use a telescope. You get a telescope, you, you can then start making uh, telescopic observations. And, and most telescopes of, of three inches or more uh, should be able to get down to, to 11th magnitude from, from a dark site. And then um, as you get more experience, you can, uh, you can try for uh, nailing the uh, dwarf galaxy there just, just off of Regulus. So you can kind of uh, you know, see sort of, sort of the progression of, uh, of an amateur astronomer right there where you just identify Regulus using the moon, you, you come back to observe some stars that require optical aid nearby, you can enhance those observations with a telescope and then uh, you, you can really try something super challenging uh, once, you, once you get some experience behind you to, to see the dwarf galaxy. There we go, Shane. Anything else to add on that one? No, no, that's a, that's a great uh, ending to Leo, I think. Just the, how, how you can sort of 
uh, you know, in a small region of the sky, um, uh, elevate or escalate your, uh, your observing skills just by testing, testing it out on a few interesting objects there. Yeah. So Virgo, what can you tell me about Virgo? Well, Virgo is, um, uh, you know, I, I think one of the sweet parts of the sky for anybody that appreciates galaxies. Um, there's an awful lot. Um, I remember my first tour through Virgo trying to um, uh, uh, get my Messier objects that are uh, in there. And I've never probably been more humbled at the eyepiece as I was then. I still remember it and I still get humbled when I look through that part of the sky. And the reason is that it is such a galaxy rich part of our night sky that if you have a wide field eyepiece and a telescope that also, you know, allows you to see a decent field, you will have five or six galaxies in multiple fields of view. Um, and, and when you just stop to think about how many stars are in a galaxy and, you know, we're starting to discover all of these exoplanets within our galaxy, uh, it really boggles my mind as to the potential and the size and the scale of our universe. Um, so I, I really do enjoy panning through here. And I have to say too, um, it, it's, uh, it, it almost gets challenging to determine which galaxy you're looking at because there's so many galaxies yeah. that you will see in there. Like if you're, all, all of what we're talking about, particularly around galaxies, uh, nebula and clusters, um, dark skies help. Um, you need dark skies. Variable stars, double stars, you can do that from the city. But pretty much everything else, you, you know, you really, to, to appreciate all of the beauty, you do need that dark sky. And Virgo is uh, an incredibly rich galaxy uh, area. Yeah. So as far as location goes, uh, Virgo is just to the southeast of Leo. Now, there is, uh, there is another trick to finding it. And one of the challenges with Virgo is, uh, well, it's got, a, it's got a first magnitude star, Spica, and then there's Perima, which is around second or so magnitude. Uh, but then the other ones like Vinimatrix and Zima and all these other ones are like third, fourth, fifth magnitude to, to make up the constellation. Um, so yeah, there's a couple brighter stars that, that you might be able to see from the city, but the other ones are going to be really faint. So how do you identify which, which star is actually Spica? Well, the, the trick that we do is we come off the handle of the Big Dipper. And I think you go about uh, maybe 50 degrees or so. But what you do does, doesn't matter the distance. You arc to Arcturus, which is the bright star in the bottom of Boots the Herdsman. And it's a bright orange star. It's really prominent. In fact, if you find Leo, kind of the, the, the pointy triangle of Leo kind of points at Arcturus. And a lot of times... Um, Arcturus kind of can be mistaken for, for Mars or something like that. Like I went out the other night, I was just testing out some gear on my deck and I'm like, what's that? Wait, 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 that's not Mars. It can't be. And then I'm like, that's, yeah, that's Arcturus, right? I, I get a little confused because it's, uh, it's lower here than, uh, than where I, where I learned the stars from. So every spring when I'm out here, I'm like, oh yeah, everything's a little bit lower. So, um, and then what you do is you speed on to Spica. So you arc off the handle of the Big Dipper, you arc to Arcturus, and then you speed on to Spica. So just, you just kind of keep arcing in this sort of same large, be a huge circle that's going to encompass, you know, you know, uh, the sky below your horizon even, but uh, you, you can kind of form this pattern along. And if you really want to find it, you can just Google Arc to Arcturus and speed on to Spica. Um, 
and then uh, you're going to be able you're going to be able to find that uh, even if you don't spell things properly you're going to get a lot of uh, a lot of Google hits with a lot of uh, good finder charts for you to use. Also, the ecliptic runs through Virgo, so you can also get bright planets right now. Uh, there's no planets. I think there might be some uh, asteroids and that sort of thing um, cutting through there. In fact, that that's kind of uh, a good place to look for for asteroids uh, if you're ever trying to uh, trying to see any. Um, and then we have lots of galaxies uh, too, of course. All right. So one of the other things there, Shane, is the uh, Leonid meteor shower. Did you ever see the Leonids? Uh, yeah, I have seen them. Um, again, like for a lot of meteor showers, I don't actually make an effort to go out to see them. It's just, I'm often out observing. So, you know, at some point you're observing during a meteor shower and that's one of them that I've, I've just timed it right where I've had a telescope out and, and notice a lot of meteors and realize, oh yeah, it's the Leonids now. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I think, I think the, the peak night every year is the 17th of, of November. Although I think in the, in the nights preceding that, um, you do get, you do get some increased activity, but, uh, like with, uh, like with most meteor showers, they've correlated this back to, to a comet and the comet that is the, uh, is the generator of the material, uh, that we're seeing coming in is comet Temple Tuttle. And, and this, for whatever reasons, uh, this causes outbursts about every 35 or 30 odd years or so. And, and so, uh, you know, normally we, we don't get too many meteors uh, during the lineage. You, you can get some, they tend to be pretty bright. You get more fireballs for whatever reason, the material that comes off Comet Swift Tuttle uh, leads to fireballs. And then uh, every three and a half decades or so, we do get uh, a really big uh, sort of uh, quote unquote storm, a meteor storm. And uh, some of these date back to uh, 1833 and, and 1889. And there, there's a variety of, uh, of woodcuts and, and, uh, artwork from, uh, from Germany and other places in Europe as well. There's a beautiful one, um, you know, showing the meteors coming down over, over Niagara Falls as, uh, as displayed in, uh, in, uh, mechanics magazine, um, and, uh, made by the editor Pickering. Uh, who, who witnessed uh, the, this amazing sight of just uh, meteors kind of showering. Here, here you have, um, you know, basically a waterfall of meteors from the sky uh, over Niagara Falls uh, on the New York side, of course, not, not the Canadian side. But uh, I think it'd be too bright there now to see too many meteors. I, I've been to Niagara Falls a few times at night and, and uh, you aren't seeing many, but uh, you'll see some fireworks. <laughs> <laughs> So back in 2003, we actually had a storm. Did you see that meteor storm from the Leonids in 2003? Or was that just before you got into observing? Yeah, I didn't. I did not see it. Um, nope. I don't have any memory of it. Yeah, I did go out. I spent, it was cold. It was clear and cold. I think the moon was out in the evening. And then um, I went to, I went to a friend's house and uh and observed on his deck and we saw a few a few meteors um but then in the in the early morning hours after the moon set that's when it was going to be best and i had a had a spot picked out and uh, had gone out there many mornings to observe it was like about a 20 or 30 minute maybe no 20 minute drive from my my place in the city and it was it was out beautiful view to the east over over the north atlantic 
it's going to be this beautiful calm morning it was going to be cold like cold for there like minus maybe minus three or minus four a bit of wind and uh i'd planned i'd gone and observed there a whole pile of times like probably about a hundred times before in the morning never saw anybody and when i showed up on the morning of uh of november 17th in 2003 there was probably about three or four hundred people there <laughs> oh, wow it was really something else and uh and so i you know hauled my my binoculars up with me i can't remember i don't think i bothered setting my telescope up because uh um yeah, you could just like kind of kind of look and we did see like a lot and it was kind of neat. It was kind of like watching a fireworks show with uh, with uh, several hundred people and there was like oohs and ahs and it's right there on the ocean and people were like all over the rocks and everything. And yeah, it was it was pretty cool. It was it was a pretty neat, uh, neat experience to see. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty awesome. So uh, I guess I should have had that Leonid. Um, section in the, in, the, in the Leo portion of the constellation. I think I added a couple slides in later, so sorry about that. Um, but it's not fall anyway, so we're, we're a ways off from Selenians. Uh, <laughs> so we are amateurs, I will stress that. So according to the Babylonian uh, Malapin, uh, which dates from, from about, I think it's like 1000 BC, although that, that number seems to change a little bit. Um, the, the constellation um, may have just been Spica. And, and so instead of just, just being this, this whole constellation of Virgo and, and all these other stars, uh, Vindimatrix and, and uh, the other ones, um, it, it may just have been Spica. So kind of one of those rare instances where they had named a region of the sky. Really, it was just that one star. And that, that was probably what, what they meant by um, Virgo or as they call it, the furrow. And um, Back, uh, you know, in, in those times, they actually were representing um, an ear of grain um, or a sheaf of, uh, of grains. I, I always get that kind of mixed up. I shouldn't because we live in, in the grain belt here. Um, but there was this association with, um, with fertility and, and, you know, um, the, the crops and, and those sort of things. And in fact, um, sort of looking ahead... If we're going to talk about uh, the constellation of uh, Coma Berenices here in a minute, um, but Coma Berenices was also seen as uh, as a wheat sheaf uh, for a period of time. So they were kind of sort of uh, there was a relationship between between these two constellations and and the planting uh, of crops. But anyway, let's talk about some galaxies here in Virgo. Shane, what what can you tell us about the Virgo Galaxy Cluster slash Mercurian's chain? Well, there's quite a few galaxies there. Uh, some of them are Messier objects, but the vast majority are NGCs. Um, let's see here. Uh, so like Messier 49, uh, 58, 59, 60, 61, um, on and on and on. There's so many galaxies here. Um, what's interesting, though, is probably one of the most popular or, or most photographed galaxy in uh, Virgo is the Sombrero galaxy M104. Yeah. And it's not a part of Markarian's chain, but um, I think typically within Markarian's chain, there's five or six galaxies that um, uh, people uh, try to pull in through the telescope. Um, I can't remember if they're all in one field of view or not. Yeah, they are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If your field yeah. is big enough. <laughs> yeah but isn't one of them like a bit of a challenge due to it not being super bright or am i thinking of something else 
Yeah, well, some of them are painter, yeah, for sure. But uh, but you, you can see a pretty big swath. Like I remember taking my 80 millimeter out to a really dark site and it, I forget the field of view, I had a pretty wide field of view, maybe uh, six, five, five degrees or something like that anyway. And uh, yeah, you could, you could fit most of the chain and then you could kind of pan around and see them too. So mm -hmm. um, an interesting note too, to help you navigate all of the galaxies in Virgo is if you have the sky and telescope pocket Atlas um, towards the back of it, they have a, like a small appendix where they oh, yeah. have uh, like blow up charts of some intriguing areas of the skies. So they have the Pallades in here and Orion sword but they also have the Virgo galaxy cluster. So it's a close-up chart and um, it is really, really helpful for navigating through here. Um, some other people I know that uh, have larger apertures actually kind of simulate navigating through Virgo in their planetarium software um, and identifying which galaxies they want to observe and you know how they would kind of star hop and get there. Um, so that when they're actually at the eyepiece in the field, it just, uh, they've had some practice at it already from their coach. Um, and it may sound a little silly, but once you get into Virgo and see how many galaxies there are, it, especially if you have like a larger uh, aperture telescope, it definitely can help. But you, you sent me an interesting yeah. note a week or so ago about one of your <laughs> um, observing friends um, suspecting that he may have seen Markarian's chain without any optics. That's, that's pretty incredible. Yeah. So, uh, so Alan Whitman, who's, who's sort of a, a in a, in a way, at least I, I think of him as, as a bit of a mentor, both before and after I, I met him because he's one of the, uh, the deep sky contributors to sky and T telescope magazine going back uh, several decades. And I'd been familiar with, with his writings. In fact, when I, when I had to move and I was throwing out all my magazines I actually cut out, all of his articles and put them in an accordion binder. Um, but I was actually fortunate enough to, to meet Alan uh, on a few occasions and, and I have been fortunate as well to do some observing with him. And, uh, and, and he's, uh, you know, a really uh, great observer and really encouraging of other people's observations and, and has reached out to me uh, on several occasions to, to provide guidance and advice if, if I've written something and, and uh, he's looking to help me refine it or, or make a suggestion or, or something like that. So uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. But I'm also on a list that he suggests I go on. And, uh, and, and he's one of the main contributors to the list. I often don't contribute. Um, but uh, he and Mel Bartles and Jerry Londrigus, who, who is one of the contributors to, uh, to that blue book that you have uh, that you like. I forget the name of it. The uh, Catalog of Deep Sky Objects or something like that. Anyway. Um, but Alan, Alan was making the comment that he, he thought that perhaps he had seen um, the Virgo cluster or Mercarian's chain naked eye. So they were having this really great, very long conversation over email about uh, whether or not that, that was possible. Um, seems like if it is, it, it's right on, right on the threshold, um, you know, for somebody from a, from a really dark site. They, they were debating it. Um, a couple of people made some other comments and suggestions could be zodiacal band getting mixed in could be could be other things um i'm not sure um if alan would have confused the zodiacal band with uh with mark Herring's chain or not i suppose anything's possible um late at night under a dark sky you know i've seen a lot of strange things that in the light of day i'm like ah that's not not, not really maybe what i observe but but you know i think that that is um you know a good example of like pushing pushing your limits 
mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and a lot of these individuals are, are uh, you know, have several years on us and here they are still plugging away and, and pushing the limits on what can be seen uh, under the nighttime sky. So um, it's just amazing to read like their experiences and their analysis um, of their observations. So I never even thought of trying to see Markarian's chain, uh, the Virgo cluster naked eye before. Um, but yeah, once, uh, once we get out under, under a dark sky again, I think I need new glasses though. I think I'm definitely, uh, probably losing a fraction of a magnitude. So I think, think you're definitely going to want every advantage you, you can get to try to see that. But one way would be to take like our, uh, are super low power two times binoculars. And I know uh, a lot of people have these constellation view binoculars, whether they're, they're the ones that, uh, that you make out of the Nikon lenses, or I know several manufacturers have them would be to kind of uh, use those and see if you can, if you can see the, uh, the uh, Mark Herring's chain. Um, and then if you can see that uh, through those, then kind of back off and, and see if you can kind of go back and forth between them, see if you can nail it uh, that way. I don't know. What are your thoughts, Shane? Yeah. You know, I think it's worth a try. Like, um, this is where the, the magnitude scale is kind of deceiving too. I think, um, you know, we've seen some stuff in under really dark skies that are, you know, magnitude eight ish to, you know, even a little bit dimmer than that, but you know, the collective light of, you know, magnitude eight objects that are close together, sometimes all of a sudden using averted vision, you, you see it. Um, so, you know, I, 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 I'm always skeptical. Um, but I'm also open, uh, to the possibility that, you know, things are possible, um, uh, you know, under a night, uh, under a dark sky, there's so many factors that play into it. You know, there's local conditions, there's the observer's eye, the observer's experience, but I never rule anything out. And, you know, I think the best comment on all of this is, have you ever tried, you know, to see Markarian's chain naked eye? And, and I can easily answer that and say, no, never. So I, you know, I can't dismiss it either until I try. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah, no, it's really cool. And that's, uh, that's one of the things I like belonging to these, these different groups, whether they're, uh, they're, they're a membership based group, like the RASC or the AEVSO or one of the other ones we, we talk about, or, uh, or just, just like a very casual, um, informal, uh, observers list, um, which, which isn't really centralized, um, with any, with any group, it's just uh, sort of, sort of like diehard observers, you know, um, of, of which I, I barely, barely classify myself as and, uh, and seldom make any contributions. Um, but yeah, it's, it's kind of neat to, to think about those things. So may, maybe we'll be able to give it a go here in a few weeks when we get back into dark skies again. So Spica, Spica is about one magnitude. It's actually, uh, it's a double star. Do you know much about it, about, about the double star nature of it, uh, Shane? No, actually this, uh, this one, I don't know a lot about. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I'm not, uh, as much in, into the doubles, but it's, it's a first magnitude star. It's about 250 light years away. You get to it by arcing from the handle of the big dipper to, uh, Arcturus and boots, and then down to, uh, you speed on to Spica, uh, as they say, it's quite a prominent, uh, white star. And, uh, you know, one of the variables in, in the area is SS Virginis. I wonder if that will be, that will be, maybe that will be the next star that, uh, the AVSO has, uh, has up in a, in a couple of weeks. Cause that's a pretty prominent one. And it's also a red star. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking at the Spica double star details. So Spica is very bright, as you mentioned, uh, magnitude plus one, uh, the, 
companion is mag 12 so it's quite dim um but the separation is huge it's 152 arc seconds so oh. i i think that that should be doable but um quite a variation in magnitude there yeah i wonder 12 magnitude and being so close to a brighter star that uh that might be a challenge for the three inch eh? could be yeah i i don't know yeah it, it might be yeah cool anything else yeah. in spica nope, that's it yeah i kind of skipped ahead there i guess uh and i went, went ahead to ss virginis which is uh which is the variable star. Try to put a variable star in, into some of these. And uh, it's, it's a red star, varies in magnitude from uh, a faintness of 9.6 magnitude, which, which would still be visible in a, in a good like 50 millimeter or, or larger binocular from, from a decently dark site uh, to a maximum of sixth magnitude. So just barely uh, poking above uh, the naked eye threshold. And, it, and it's about uh, maybe 15 or 20 degrees north uh northwest of spica towards uh towards leo there sort of just up the arm but you're going to want to get a get a finer chart or shane if you want to take this finer chart out of the uh out of the slide set that'd be great too yeah i'll, I'll post this whole slide deck to uh, actualastronomy.com for anybody that wants to check out these references afterwards yeah and then we have uh coma berenices Coma Berenices hair. So you were you were observing Coma Berenices recently, I think. Yeah, I was panning through there. There's a, a number of double stars on the RASC's double star list, um, and I even stumbled across uh, an open cluster um, M53. Uh, it was pretty dim in my 76 and in the city, but uh, definitely there. Yeah, globular cluster, isn't it? Oh yeah, yeah. Sorry, it is a globular. Yeah, my mistake for sure. Yeah, and uh, I mean, you can be mistaken because it is uh, a really bright uh, globular cluster. Uh, you were able to see it even from the city. And a lot of the time, uh, you know, the, the lesser globulars than sort of that half dozen really, really bright set of like M13 and, and, uh, and those ones uh, are, are too faint to see from the city. And then we have the really sort of like uh, on the opposite side. So that's just off of uh, Alpha. Coma Berenices, which is, you know, and maybe we'll talk about the, the shape of Coma Berenices first. So Shane, can you draw Coma Berenices? If you were to draw it, what would it look like? <laughs> um, this might be one of the few I, I can draw. Um, it looks like a, a right angle, maybe an L. <laughs> half yes. of a square. <laughs> half of a square. Yeah. Yeah. I guess you could, if you, if you joined up with like M85, you would, oh, you yeah. would be able yeah. to make a full, a full square out of it there. But, uh, you know, none, none of the, the three stars that sort of form the, uh, the, the points of, of this sort of half square or triangle or whatever you want are, are all that bright. I think they're just around third magnitude or so. So you need to be, uh, you know, I, I can kind of see them from the city here. They're not that bright though. So once you, once you get anywhere dark, though, it kind of it kind of sticks out. But then the big thing, of course, is the uh, Cohen Berenices star cluster, or I think it's Malat one 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 there, which is just off of Gamma or the uh, or the part of the of the square that that is on the top right or to the north uh, northwest. So, well, without further ado, we'll get into this a little bit more. So you know. Cone Berenices is one of the few, I think it's the only constellation that's actually named after uh, a real person, which was the, uh, 
the spouse of uh, of Ptolemy. And sort of as as the story goes, um, you know, and this this is often told and retold. Um, but the story goes that uh, she was waiting for Ptolemy, not the astronomer Ptolemy, but one of the warring Ptolemies, um, to return home from battle and promised, uh, made, made a promise to one of the gods or goddesses. And then uh, if he arrived safe, that, that she would uh, basically shave her head. Um, and, and when he did arrive safe, uh, she did so and then put her hair uh, in, in the temple and uh, to the goddess. And then... Um, you know, uh, of course, what happens is the hair goes missing. And then uh, when they went to the court astrologer to say, hey, like, what happened? Like, what did the guy do with the hair? What, what's, you know, what's going on here? Um, they, they made up uh, this, this story about the hair being flung into, you know, the heavens. Oh, no, 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 there it is. You know, it's right above you, you know. <laughs> so uh, probably, trying to save, pro- probably trying to save themselves from having their own very short haircut. <laughs> so... So it's kind of kind of one of those things. But prior to that, it was actually seen as uh, as as another wheat sheaf, just like we talked about, um, you know, spica being being the furrow or or in some cases being a, also being a sheaf of wheat. And if you look on the uh, on the uh, Uranometria from uh, Johannes Bear of 1603, um, he actually depicts uh, the the uh, area of Coma Berenices and the and the area of the uh, of Malat one 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 that giant open cluster that uh, that also shares the same name often it's just called the Coma Berenices star cluster as a wheat sheep here so I kind of have these these two images um, from the, and they're not great they're a bit faded but from Uranometria sixteen oh three showing how in one next to uh, Boots. Uh, sort of just below uh, Canis Venetici, which is just below the Big Dipper, you, you have this uh, area that, that is depicted as a sheaf of wheat, and, uh, and that's uh, Coma Berenices. And then, then over on the chart with Ursa Major, very, very faintly, he's paid homage to Coma Berenices and depicted it as the hair. So it's kind of hard to see there, but if, but if you kind of look really close, it's the, it's sort of got this crown and then hanging from the crown is the hair. So he's depicted it uh, both ways. But, but in this case, they're actually referring to the open cluster as Coma Berenices. But uh, what wasn't actually a constellation uh, until, until later. So I wrote up a, I wrote up a bit. This was uh, back in uh, 2016 and published in 2017. And uh, this is actually what we call the giveaway section of the Observer's Handbook. And, uh, and myself and, and my good friend, Randall Rosenfeld, um, created, a, created a bit of a, an observing guide, I guess, basically. I don't know what else you would call it, but it's a bit of observing guide to observing the, the open globular and galaxies uh, of Coma Berenices. So, Shane, that can be sent out, too. Yeah, that looks really cool. And, and lots of sketches of the uh, various objects there. That's awesome. Yeah. So one thing we're doing is and we, we will never finish this project. As many, many astronomy projects go unfinished, but uh, continue to publish throughout our lifetimes is, is to kind of work through uh, the constellations and, and what, can be, what can be seen in them. Um, and this, this is one of those ones that we kind of finished off and 
and put out for for publication. So lots of uh, galaxies, lots of uh, or the open cluster, and then the globular cluster uh, there as well. And then uh, the, the, there's another globular cluster of the the Abel uh, 1656 uh, that, that's visible there too. Yeah. So yeah, one of the awesome. things I want to, yeah one of the things I want to mention with uh, with Coma Berenices is this is kind of the part of the sky where in a way we're transitioning from the, uh, the galaxy season uh, to the summer, because here we have an open cluster and open clusters are typically in the band of the Milky Way, although this one's just off band. And uh, we're very fortunate because I think it's, it's about the closest uh, open cluster to us. And then um, it's actually in, in the same range or the same region as the, uh, as the globular clusters, which are typically halo objects floating around the outside of our Milky Way. And of course, uh, during the springtime, we're looking uh, towards the outside of our Milky Way. And that's how we're able to see these galaxies, but also um, we're able to see some globular clusters. And then we're able to see uh, the very fortunate, this, this open cluster there. Yeah, there is a lot to see um, in that part of the sky. Um, not, not necessarily star wise, but deep sky wise, there's an awful lot of objects there. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Then we have the, uh, I have this on my screen. I'm not sure if you're looking at my screen or not, but I have, uh, I have a big galaxy up there. Do you know what galaxy this is? I'm just switching over. Do, 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 do. I do not. So is that the black eye? Yeah. That's the black eye galaxy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then we, there's another dwarf galaxy there. There's some edge-ons. There's, there's all kinds of different galaxies. Then we have the globular cluster M53. And then, of course, the uh, Coma Berenices star cluster. And then the, the last thing I have in this slideshow is my sketch of the entire constellation of Coma Berenices. And, uh, and then my, my sort of odd uh, esoteric depiction of the uh, Coma Berenices star cluster as an, as an ivy leaf. As, uh, as the astronomer told me to put it, and then uh, something that looks like a very bad Dobsonian mount. Yeah, very cool. That'll be, uh, again, that'll just be part of the show notes that uh, will accompany this episode. Yeah, all right. Well, do you have anything uh, left to add? You talked a bit about uh, some of your observations in, in our previous episode, but do you have anything left to add to this one? Uh, I know we're running tight on time, so I won't get into much detail, but... Um, uh, there are a number of really cool double stars in all of these constellations. Um, again, I reference people to the RASC's double star list. I'm working through that right now um, and uh, have observed a number of these like 83 Leo, uh, Tau Leo, uh, and there's a few others. So if you're interested in some uh, fairly, uh, fairly uh, interesting doubles, like a lot of color contrasts um, and fairly easy to find and split, uh, check out that list, rasc.ca. And I'm going to say, if, uh, if you aren't, uh, uh, you know, if you have a pair of binoculars and you haven't done that much astronomy yet, um, this spring, go out and take a look at the Coma Berenices Star Cluster. Just Google it, Google Finder Chart for Coma Berenices Star Cluster, or go to skymaps.com. You can download their star chart there. It will uh, guide you towards it. Because uh, that Coma Berenices Star Cluster, I think, is, uh, if, if not the prettiest, largest, brightest, one of the easiest to find and see open clusters in the nighttime sky. Uh, it certainly makes probably the best open cluster target uh, in the spring sky for you to hunt down. Yeah, I think that's a great way to end it. All right. Well, thanks so much, Shane. Thanks, Chris. And thanks everybody for listening. 
Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.